Hey everybody, welcome back to another episode of State of the Art. This is Gabe BC, your host. You can find us at State of the Art on Instagram or Twitter, or get in touch with me at Gabe at thestateoftheart.org. I'm actually sitting in New York right now looking out the window, and there's a blizzard happening. Uh, I don't know when you're going to hear this, so... I mean, I don't think you're going to hear it when it's sunny outside, so it'll probably still be blizzarding here, unless there's a big rift in the, the time loop that I'm unaware of. Um, Wow, I don't know where my mind's going today. Anyways, today we have a great episode uh, with Brett Volker and Steve Milton, uh, the founders of Listen. And Listen, how do you define what Listen is? They're going to define it for you, but they've worked with artists to create amazing, immersive, interactive experiences. Um, They've worked with artists like Childish Gambino, uh, you know, all the way up to Saul LeWitt, Muse, Neon Indian, all sorts of different artists, whether they're musicians to visual artists. Um, They work with brands and they create really compelling activations and experiences that you can uh, experience live uh, in person or through apps that they also build. So we talk a lot about what it's like to work with artists uh, and how to translate an idea from maybe a sound into a whole world that you can experience. Uh, So let's start off this podcast right away and welcome Brett Volker and Steve Milton. Brett and Steve from Listen, thank you so much for joining me today. Great to be here. Pleasure to be here. So maybe we can start off with just defining what Listen is. Is it a production studio, an agency, like a secret club? Um, how would you describe it to people who've never heard of Listen before? <laughs> secret club. Secret club all the way. <laughs> um, Steve, do you want to take that one? Yeah, I mean, look, the way that, that we describe our work is that you know we work across the, the music, art, tech landscape. And, uh, you know, that means a number of different things. Um, and, you know, there, we always joke that there is no way to, you know, our, with our team, there is no way to, uh, when you go home for, uh, Thanksgiving to, to see your, your family, uh, and your parents, there's no way to describe what we do very easily. <laughs> there's a lot of, uh, a lot of what we do are a lot of firsts, um, and, uh, usually collaborating with, um, you know, uh, musicians and artists uh, in ways that are uh, doing something that maybe uh, they you know, was was not has not been done before, but offers up a new way of, you know, um, uh, both creating and consuming music and art. And that is actually coming back to the heart of, of, of what we do is you know, when Brett and I, um, you know, started the company, that was very much for to um you know uh, what we uh, had discussed uh beforehand uh before we we knew each other more casually and and we had always been discussing the creation and consumption uh, uh of music and art and how um you know, technology is playing a role in really changing that and we wanted to work uh, we wanted to do work uh, that really spoke to that and so that's that's really uh, i think at the heart of, of what we do and and, and again um, a, a difficult thing to articulate, but uh, I think we're getting better at it. And do you both come from an artistic background? I mean, were you having a conversation one day and just kind of decided, oh, we need to start this thing to work with artists and work with new technology? Um, slightly different backgrounds, actually, um, but circulating the same thing. Um, before we knew each other, um, you know, at one stage, I'd, I'd gone from college into working at record labels and working in live music and, and thinking about artist management um, while Steve was um, writing, recording, playing, composing, composing music. And that kind of speaks to the, the creation consumption conversations. We, um, we met at a, at a wedding, actually, two mutual friends introduced us. And in some ways, you could say, I guess the conversation never stops from from that point, but it was, it was, as Steve says, that very much creation, consumption of music. What an interesting time we're living in. You know, what did, uh, you know, and our, our careers had also given us great exposure to technology and the powerful way that it could impact um, art and culture more generally. And, you know, the thought of where that was going to go over the years ahead was something that was really inspiring to us. You know, how can how can technology have the ability to change or impact the experience of culture? 
um, essentially was was a lot of the conversations we were just riffing on as as friends. And in many ways, that's that is exactly what led to the start of the company. We uh, we eventually talked ourselves into it. How has new technology impacted the way we experience culture, whether that's AR, VR, or even thinking about installation art? I'm just curious from your perspective. It's funny. I went, in graduate school, I, I, I studied musicology, um, but not kind of like traditional musicology. Um, more, uh, I, I really focused on on well, postmodern kind of theory and how that is applied to kind of the culture and society and and, and the music that we consume. I actually uh, wrote my thesis on Beck's album Odalay. Now I don't know if you. Oh yeah, I love Odalay. It's a great album, you know, um, and. You, when you start to think about an artist like Beck, you realize that being a musician in the traditional sense, um, he really you know breaks down a lot of the, the 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 kind of preconceived notions of what it means to to be a musician, and you know had a hand in and has had a hand in not yes composing and, and producing and writing all of his music, but it goes beyond that, and the approach was you know um, you know very much influenced by a number of different things, and I. I bring that up because, um, you know, I think the way that when we think about Beck, Beck, it would be hard for what he did to exist without technology, right? And and so I think that, you know, when we think about the world we're living in now and how much has even changed over time since then, um, we have new, uh, you know, a lot of new tools at our disposal. We have new ways of, um, you know, creating not not only music but also art that in that that can use uh, some of these tools to help explore different creative paths help people receive the information in different ways and um you know uh, it, it's just uh to us i think a very fun and exciting time and and that's where we we really have focused a lot of of our work yeah, and tell me about one of your musical projects i know that one of the first pieces you created was a virtual choir for the ted conference how did this project come about? Yeah, I can talk to that one. Um, we were actually working on a project with some people um, who were trying to, uh, in the lead up to the the, climate, the Paris Climate Accord uh, being signed, um, they were re-looking at what Live Earth was many years ago, and it was Al Gore and Pharrell Williams and a bunch of people looking at how they maybe could do something like that again. Um, to promote the right conversations in advance of that at that event, um, that event didn't end up going ahead. Sadly, there was some great stuff that came out of it, um, and it contributed to the conversation. But um, it didn't go ahead in that form. But it introduced us to some people who understood what we could do. And uh, long story short, someone uh, was having a conversation. Someone in that project was talking to Chris Anderson at TED, and Ted, Chris had been thinking about how to challenge Eric Whitaker, uh, the composer, with um, who'd been doing a, a thing called the virtual choir and the virtual choir at that stage was him getting loads of submissions online um, and recreating a piece um, from all of those online submissions in digital form. The challenge that Chris had come up with was how could we close Ted this year um, by you know doing that live? Um, and so the people we've been working on that project with and some of the stuff we've been thinking about said, talk to these people. So that was essentially the brief that we got. Um, and we started working with Eric and really thinking about how that could happen. Because if you're going to do something like that live, uh, obviously latency is a big thing, you know, you know, a bit of a theme probably coming here, but it never really been done before like that. And it involved a lot of thinking, you know, it was a, a lot of work from Eric as well. He sort of recomposed parts of the piece to embrace some of the latency and parts of it. Um, but we ended up using a version of Skype, um, mm. Skype TX, it's called. It's the transmission. Skype transmission is the product that many people in the in the media sector use. Uh, and we hacked that and came up with a system where we had 32 people from 32 countries um, singing live um, who were visually represented on a screen as well, joining 100 Caristas in the room um, to perform the piece. And that was really, that was one of the earliest pieces that we did and really sort of, you know, it, it very much embodied what we set out to do when we started this company, you know, contribute to culture and push it forward to do things that have never been done before, um, aided by technology. But in some ways, you know, the beauty of that piece is something we talk about a lot, which is, you know, the technology, although evident, 
kind of got out of the road and just allowed for this moment to happen, which um, was pretty special for the people in the audience. Yeah, I can't believe you solved the the awkward problem of singing over uh, Zoom <laughs> or Skype <laughs> in this case. I still haven't experienced that myself without it being horribly awkward. Um, I'm curious, did anybody use this technology later after you developed it for the choir? Like, were other people performing with this kind of hacked version of Skype that you created? The one thing I was going to add is we didn't solve for the latency issue uh, with we the technology. We embraced it. We embraced it, ah. exactly. So what you had was there were elements, there was parts of his piece that allowed for, you know, indeterminate, uh, you know, uh, 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 musical um, uh, you know, uh, compositional elements. And so they didn't have to line up, they didn't have to sync up. And so we, we embrace those aspects and, and we're able to do that. Cause you're right. The latency, um, is a challenge and it, it, it's a very complicated challenge. We won't need to get into it now, but, but, um, that was one of the fun things when thinking about this and, and, and think and working with Eric to kind of think about, you know, his music and how, um, he could also embrace uh, that side of 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 the the composition. Yeah, I find that happens a lot with interactive installations, where almost if you make them too mechanical or interactive, that they don't have the same humanity from them. <laughs> so mm -hmm. by finding kind of creative solutions or embracing the latency in a way, it ends up being a more human experience. At least I don't know. Does that make sense? Totally. Like it's almost like you don't want something to be too interactive or to have like a million possibilities because that's not how our brains work when it comes to stories or narrative experiences. Um, no, that's exactly the point um, I was making about the, hopefully done well, the technology gets out of the road and just allows for something more transportive, you know, even if it's just because it's completely unique, but but hopefully on a number of sensory levels, you know, more special, more interesting. Um, but it's not about the technology front and center because that takes something away from it. It's about what it can, what it can provide, or, or how it can um, augment what you know has been done before. Outside of composition and this virtual choir, you also designed notification sounds. I read um, for the dating app Tinder. How <laughs> did <laughs> I've actually strangely never been on Tinder? I haven't done a tremendous amount of um, online dating since my failed time on AOL in the 90s, um, although those were different notification sounds. How did you decide on a sound for Tinder for a dating app? That is a, uh, it's a fun project. We we do actually do a lot of work um, with sound uh, specifically and then designing product experiences. We come at it slightly different than maybe some other folks in that we are not we are not advocates of creating more sounds for the for the sake of it in fact you know how do we apply you know a, a bit of acoustic ecology um and uh to 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 the world of product sound design which is a, a really fascinating world right how do you uh, apply that and how do you not you know um uh, pollute the world um with with you know with, with more sound but rather um, design something that's going to be functional and you know informational. It's gonna it's gonna also be pleasing. Um, and so that that's kind of been our approach. Um, Tinder. Um, this was back. This is a few years ago now. Um, and they were um, uh, really thinking about you know their 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 brand and their product and how they were going to reposition at the time and not just be kind of a, a hookup app, but more of a dating app. And, you know, over the years, I think they've accomplished that in many respects, but um, sound um, was a way for them to not hide behind, but rather come out and say, yes, you know, um, that, that is the, the, the sound of, of, of Tinder. And so we actually focused in on um, the a key hero moment of the user experience, which is when you match. And uh, the 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 conversation that we had with you know the CEO and 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 the folks there at the time was, you know, what what should that sound like? And you know they were really um, really intrigued by this idea of possibility. And so you know we we ended up working um, with you know our sound designers to um, create a, a number of different sounds that 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 match sound that hero match sound. Um, could sound like, and it, and you know, we express this idea of possibility. Um, also, side note for those of you who are listening and do use Tinder, um, the the CEO Sean was 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 really also excited about 
you know, expressing what it, what video games, like when you play Super Mario Brothers and you, you, you get a coin that, 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 you know, that, that sound, he was really excited about, you know, um, kind of trying to express that. And so there's a little bit of, when you hear that sound, there's a little bit of it baked in there as well. So, um, it's a very niche, um, uh, kind of example, uh, of our work, but, um, one that we, uh, what we had a lot of fun with. It's super interesting. The idea of crafting emotional experiences with these digital reactions. It seems like your work is all about mm-hmm. that, whether that's visual or auditory. Um, do you think about that in terms of like ethics as well? Like, what does it mean when our emotion is so tied to a specific sound or to a specific visual situation or reward? hundred percent. And, you know, um, there's a responsibility, I think, um, with respect to designing these sounds that that one must take. I mean, you know, without going too deep into it, because we do we have over the years thought about it a lot, talked about it a lot. And, um, you know, I, I think that um, th- there's a there's a kind of negative reaction in, you know, to these Pavlovian, the, you know, the Pavlovian response of an email or a text or whatever. And we don't see it as our job to. Yeah, to necessarily when we're designing those sounds, um, you know, to necessarily uh, be making, there is a need, another way of articulating, there is a need for the sound uh, in a number of circumstances. So if you're going to have to have a sound, let's design it so that it sounds pleasing. So let's design it so that it's functional. Let's design it so that it doesn't pollute, you know, uh, the experience that people are having, but it does inform you. And you are, you understand that. I think that that's the the most responsible way that you can approach that. Um, you know, like alarm clocks are a great example. Everybody needs an alarm clock. Well, what should that sound like? You know, how do you how do you design something that can be pleasing? Yeah, I once knew somebody who designed an alarm clock that would cook you bacon in the morning instead of having a sound at all, and it would just wake <laughs> you up with the smell of bacon. And I thought that was an interesting, different way to approach an alarm. Um, it's interesting thinking about sound and how you don't need to find sort of a harsh alert. And it kind of is a segue to me to the work you've done with Brian Eno, because I know Brian Eno also has this theory of proper sounds for proper situations rather than, um, you know, like sounds for environments. I'm thinking about his uh, music for airports album. Mm -hmm. Um, And tell me a little bit about working with Brian Eno and specifically creating this installation for Bloom. Yeah, well, it's a good segue because actually um, we had been helping out um, uh, the HoloLens team, actually, um, which is uh, an augmented reality um, uh, uh, device that uh, Microsoft uh, made, actually, uh, helping them design that sound um, experience, right? So when you're in an in, when you're in a device like that, you need sound to help reinforce you know, how you, uh, ex- the whole user experience end to end. And so um, we were doing a piece of work with them on that. And, um, you know, Bloom is, uh, again, for, uh, you know, I guess I'll just kind of, you know, Gabe, I'll explain what Bloom is. Yeah, and that'd then, be great. Yeah. So, so you know, so, so Bloom uh, came out about over 10 years ago now. Um, and it was uh, an app that, that Brian um, and Brian Eno and Peter Chilvers created together. Um, Peter is his um, uh, kind of, he wears many hats and, and works closely with Brian, a very talented and, and, and very great guy. Um, they work together to um, create Bloom, which is a very simple interface. It, you are presented with a blank screen. And as you press on um, the screen, uh, it's as if you kind of pressed and uh, dropped a dropped a rock into water. And so the visual that you see um, off your finger is a simple kind of like, you know, a puddle uh, ripples uh, out, concentric circles kind of out type thing. And it's a beautiful sound. And and um, the higher you are, the higher the frequency and the lower you are, um, the lower the frequency. And there's various scales and modes that they created to then create looped generative um, ambient music that you can kind of just, you know, you create yourself and then it loops and it's a really beautiful experience. We actually um, were talking with um, some of the developers in the HoloLens and thought, man, you know, this, this, this new augmented reality glasses, these are not virtual reality glasses. These are, you know, augmented reality. So you have your physical environment, you can see it while you have the headset on, but you're bringing 
virtual um, elements into your uh, world. And so um, we actually just demoed um, Bloom uh, in that exp- in the um, in the Hololens um, you know device uh, and in that experience. And we really thought it was really beautiful. You have these, these spheres instead of a, you know, instead of a, a kind of a circle and ripple, you have these spheres that kind of then ascend up into the, the sky. And we, and we went out and happened to, we were in, um, you know, a couple of years ago, we were, we were over for, I don't even remember why over in England. And, and we actually connected with Brian and, um, you know, he tried it out and said, yeah, I'd like to, to develop this. And so, um, we, we ended up, um, doing an exhibition in Amsterdam, um, where people could come in, um, they could put on the headset. And, um, I think it was about 10 to 12 people at a time within this large, um, circular space, um, could all interact with, create their own blooms, right. And interact with other folks, um, uh, blooms, so they could all see them. Now, you know, what it looked like to the person on the outside was people grab you know basically <laughs> their fingers out in the air right but when you're in it you're hearing and seeing these beautiful kind of like spherical um compositions that everybody's making and the further you go away from it um the less you know you you hear it the closer you get to you know these these little spheres the more you can hear them um and uh we just had so much fun with it and and brian was really um obviously he was fantastic to work with somebody who we um, you know, have had had a lot of respect for and have even more after working with him. So um, that was that was really great. Did he want to compose something for this virtual environment or does he think about it as composition linearly and then adapting those sounds to this um, AR environment? Um, what do you uh, just what do you mean composition linearly? Like, like, does he see that volume and that space as a new tool for composition when you're working with him? Does he say, oh, I want to compose something for this version of Bloom? Or does he see it as sort of like a closed system, like he's using the original uh, sound assets from the app version of Bloom in this now 3D space? Yeah, right. So we, by and large, what we were able to do, um, I think there was some tweaking and some some fine tuning that we did, but um, we used, uh, we selected a mode um, that, and I can't remember which, because there's various modes that you can select. And their musical modes is what I mean um, that that you can select from the app, and we chose one that that worked. And Brian, um, you know, selected the one that he thought was most appropriate for the experience. So, in part, yes, um, you know, and um, uh, but but there was nothing you know newly composed necessarily for that. But the beauty is that you know the it, it, you know it's the those sounds are all beautiful. So any combination of them. That's where his, you know, his talent. Yeah, he's just so uh, brilliant at, you know, understanding how to set up these generative systems, and then they create this this beautiful music. So, you know, it doesn't matter who goes in there and how many times they're they're tapping in the air. Um, there, it's always going to sound nice. Do you think there's a future where we're experiencing albums in this way in AR? One hundred percent. Really? Like we're going to be, <laughs> will it be like a special space for this? Or do you think we'll be experiencing them in our homes in AR? Hopefully both. Yeah. Now I'm wondering about sort of the future of concerts, especially now in the, you know, the fact that we're all at home. Um, maybe there is a way to kind of incorporate some of the things you're doing here in this Bloom piece with new musicians and creating compositions for your living room or something like that. You know, years ago, there was a company in Boston called Echo Nest and Spotify acquired them um, early on. But, you know, um, they 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 were doing some really cool things. And I, I think, you know, if you think about the way that now we can select the music that we listen to, right, um, based on the information that we give, say, Spotify, as an example, um, you know, you don't have to you know, stretch too far to then imagine musicians and art, you know, and artists being able to take that information and serve up personalized experiences. And this is where a lot of the AI and generative music conversation is going. Is not technology replacing humans, but you know, humans making and crafting these systems and these you know musical elements and these com- and these code and, and bringing it all together and being able to serve up. Um, you know, uh, uh, something that is going to be unique to that individual. And, and actually, a lot of our work, um, we, we do 
uh, kind of step into this area. And it's, it's been a lot of fun. Wait, so I want to know more about that. Are you saying that one day, like I can turn on Spotify and I'll have, I don't know, like Bruce Springsteen will be singing a song about me. Is that, is that what you mean? Or something more nuanced? Maybe the example, let me give you an example. Sure. Uh, I guess it was last year um, during um, Pride Week here in the city. We did an installation um, that used Microsoft AI. And uh, there's a number of folks involved. It was a really um, uh, fantastic installation. It was a fun one um, with the Ally Coalition was involved um, um, and a number of other folks. But um, we, we ended up working with St. Vincent, who um, scored um, some elements uh, that, that, that then when you were in the installation, based on what you submitted, which was a prompt, prompted question of what, you know, what does pride feel like? And you would respond. And based on the sentiment of your response, it would take the various stems that, that St. Vincent had composed and and spit out a, a, a original composition that was bespoke to you, the sentiment that, that pride means to you. So if mm. pride, if you were, you know, this the stone wall, so, you know, there was quite a wide range of emotions that year in particular to, to what was happening. And so, you know, um, you know, uh, if, if it was more, um, uh, lamenting, you know, and, and, um, uh, you know, not as joyous, um, then you would feel that not only through some of the lighting that we had in there, but also through the sounds, so it would pull, you know, the appropriate stems. If it was more of a joyous celebratory, um, statement that, that, that you submitted into this thing, then you would hear that. And so that was a fun one. Um, and, um, it kind of, I, that's what we mean. I think that, I don't know about the Bruce Springsteen. Uh, <laughs> that sounds much more I, elegant to me uh, than my Bruce Springsteen fantasy here. <laughs> well, you never know. <laughs> no, that sounds I great. This, I, sorry, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think it really goes to the core of that. Um, when we talk about creation and consumption and those conversations we were having, this is really the at the core of it. It's, you know, the album has always existed, continues to exist. Obviously, streaming's changed the way that people listen and, um, you know, all that kind of thing. You know the the live show where a band is on stage playing to an audience you know who's standing or sitting there um that we don't expect will ever go away but that's only two ways of doing things and in a world where technology is changing what's possible you know we imagine a world where in addition to you know writing recording uh, uh, an album to playing the, the regular stage show you can create something that you know whether the artist is present or not is a new way of them of of fans experiencing their music but also you know as that starts to become more the norm eventually it'll be a new way that artists will create so they will create for that medium uh, that type of medium i should say hmm. um in addition to um what they're doing and you know artists are artists they're creatively driven they're, they're always wanting to explore new ways of doing things and so You've got this fantastic meaning of those, uh, you know, that artistic hunger um, for exploration and technology catching up and providing new opportunities for for the experience. I just um, see that and more and more. We've been talking yeah. about music a lot, but obviously it goes beyond beyond just music. Yeah, I was going to say I see that more and more with modern artists, and you know, a lot of uh, musicians are now moving into the visual art world or the fashion world. Um, and kind of blending all these worlds together through these immersive and interactive installations. Um, since you brought it up, I do want to talk about visual artists, too, that you've worked with and also uh, kind of represented through your work. Um, I know that you recently created a Saul LeWitt app, and I find that super interesting because, you know, our, artists, our audience is probably familiar with the work of Saul LeWitt, but to a lot of people, it can be a little bit difficult to explain. But um, you're using AI in this app to kind of give us background on each individual work by Saul LeWitt. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. Um, that and a, and a few other things. Um, look, you know, as you said, your audience is probably aware of, of of Sol, and obviously he's you know a very important artist in the um, in the art world for for many reasons. But there's obviously different ways that he creates art, and um, he's someone that we as a team have admired for a very long time. There's a there's a, a bunch of big fans um, on the staff, and so we approached the estate um 
which is his wife and um and his daughter as well were the main points of contact and we also worked with um a woman called Lindsay, who's a, um, a, a soloist scholar and really sort of understands that world and kind of became part of our extended team um, and really thought about, you know, ways to celebrate his art. And, and importantly, you know, because this is another thing that technology can really do, it can preserve and it can also educate. You know, there's a lot of people who look at art on a wall and, you know, without the background, the training or, you know, having if they haven't been curious about it for long enough, you know, will only see you know, a limited amount of what is being conveyed or what was the intention to convey. Um, and Sol, I think, is a, you know, a really interesting artist from from that perspective. So it was it was interesting for a number of reasons beyond just passion. Um, so, yeah, we ended up um, building this app, which really, you know, allows an, the user a number of different ways into discovering more about that artist so we can use we use the ai tools that you mentioned um so Sol's works are obviously on display in galleries all around the world and, and different um public locations and you can point your phone at the at a piece of artwork the ai will help um, recognize which particular piece of artwork that is and it will explain to you how that was created and the background of that piece of art and then that draws you in further to the app and the experience where there's a number of things. We did a, we were fortunate enough to do a 360 capture of um, his studio, mm. uh, which had never been done before. Um, and then just provided as, you know, made those connections digitally uh, in, in the most sort of um, streamlined way possible uh, from a UX perspective to encourage people to explore more and to learn more. So we were both preserving uh, we were promoting, obviously, and we're educating about, you know, the fantastic contributions that Sol made to the art world um, in one experience, which um, will hopefully live for a very long time. Now, the, the the hardware may be updated, we may, you know, adjust it, but it's been built in a way that, you know, hopefully um, it can grow over time and continue to be a really valuable educational asset. And how is the image recognition working in this app? Are you just you're it's just based on the patterns of a Solowit artwork? Uh yeah, it's it's basically about um how you train the AI to recognize. And um there are people on our team who are much better to speak to the the inner workings of, of AI. But essentially, you know, AI is is cleaning and training data sets. Um so uh, we were feeding this you know, feeding the AI with all the different forms of um, uh, many different images of Solowitz artwork, and it was processing those over time. I'm simplifying, obviously, and training itself to recognize accurately, even despite different quality of photographs and different camera angles, which piece of artwork that is. Hmm. That's super interesting too, because Solowitz work can be reproduced by any artisan, right? Like it's not like That's these right. are pieces that are captured and put on, you know, in an archive. But it's interesting that AI can still kind of recognize each piece just based on the patterns alone. Yeah. Is there a danger that uh, the AI is going to become sentient and start creating its own Solowit spinoffs? <laughs> <laughs> well, now we're in a whole other conversation. Um, <laughs> I think our approach, we are, we are not the authors of this, but we, we think about this a lot. Uh, obviously, the AI conversation is, you know, there are, there are so many positives and so many negatives to it. But um, we like to think of it as, as what's generally going to be a good way forward is is human plus um and so you know where a human is involved and the ai is augmenting and adding to what can be done in isolation um that's a good thing when it um when it is doing it all by itself that is an interesting world and probably a longer conversation we have time for on this podcast but um that's kind of our approach we believe the technology can we, well it's not going away obviously um it's here um it can have really positive contributions to the world of culture you know art music fashion film um and our perspective on that is is how can we encourage that that positivity and and pave the way and create good examples of, of how it is a, it how, how it can have a positive impact. What I like about the app specifically too, is the fact that it's an educational app, but it still encourages you to see a piece in person. It's not like we yes. just experience it alone in our house on this app, that there is that recognition uh, portion of the app. Um, and so how do people uh, download this app if they wanted to try it out? 
Uh, all the usual sources. You can go to Apple and Android um, app stores and, and download that way. Um, there are a couple of restrictions as far as the hardware is in the phone that you're using, which I can't call to hand. But it's we have, the objective was to make it as broadly accessible as possible. Um, obviously, you need you know a device and a, an internet connection and, and data, but um, you should be able to find it pretty easily. And what what's the app called for people who are going to try and find it? Uh, it's just called the SolarWit app. Great, easy. <laughs> um, I also want to talk about a project you did with Mel Chin, another artist, um, called Unmoored, which happened in Times Square. What was that? A couple years, like three years ago, two years ago? Yeah, that was um, a couple years ago. And I'm blanking now if it was two or three years ago, but I, yeah, it's a fantastic um, piece. I've seen a lot of documentation about this piece. I actually show it to my students. But this is another piece um, in AR, right? This is a piece uh, also done with Microsoft uh, technology. Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, the, so this piece, um, well, actually, it's it's a funny story, um, you know, because if you know Mel um, and you know his work, which at the time, a friend of mine um, called me and said, hey, do you know who Mel Chen is? And I knew him as like, you know, I, I had known of some of his work, um, but but more the famous Melrose Place, uh, uh, you know, art. Uh, I don't even know what we would call it, art piece. Uh, and are you familiar with that? No, yeah. I'm not. So it's a crazy. Uh, and, and again, I would encourage people to go and, and just you go Google it or whatever. <laughs> but Mel um, uh, worked with a team of folks to. Um, basically uh place uh conceptual art in the show melrose place for a couple of students <laughs> i'm looking at it now that's fantastic i don't know how i've not yeah. heard of this before yeah I, and it's just amazing it's all around you know uh it's an amazing it's an amazing piece i guess whatever you want to call it but that just sums up mel you know he he really um, is such a unique individual, and um, I, I just, you know, have so much respect for him now, especially after working with him. But yeah, he he called up a friend of a uh, of ours, put us in touch, and he was saying, you know, I got this, I got this idea, and I want to put Times Square twenty six feet underwater, and. You know, uh, my friend uh, had had known that we were kind of you know starting to do work in this space and and all that, and so um, we actually then started like thinking, okay, so how do we do this? What does this mean? You know, um, how do we make it accessible to a lot of people? And um, and uh, at the end of the day, um, it was you're right, both a Microsoft AR um, device as well as uh, for any phone. Um, for for anyone who has a phone, um, you could come in down uh, to Times Square, download the app that summer, um, and um, then you would start an augmented reality experience, which put Times Square in a very you know not literal way, um, but um, uh, underwater. So so Mel uh, Mel's idea was to bring all these boats in overhead slowly, and there was a you know, soundscape happening. And the boats then eventually just kind of there's a traffic jam, right, with these boats. And then um, there's this plankton experience that that happens in and around you. Um, so, you know, that was that was really great. And seeing people, you know, maybe in Times Square, which is also why I think it was such a, a perfect place for it, um, where, you know, uh, maybe not everybody there is thinking about the climate crisis and the urgency that, that, that we all should be thinking about around it. And so, um, you know, it was one of those where, you know, we always joke, um, when, when we begin a lot of these, a lot of these projects, we always have a, we have a bit of an internal joke slash motto, which is until someone says, no, let's keep doing it. <laughs> You know, uh, that's exactly, I think that project was the one that really coined the, where we coined the term. Um, but you know, that really it was like, okay, how are we going to do this? You know, and, and that's you're right. Microsoft became a part of that project and, um, all of the, everything kind of came together and, um, yeah, it was, it was such a fun piece. Um, uh, and, um, you know, I, I think Mel is, is, is going to, you know, uh, looking to, have that live on as well. So that would be great to see um, that pop up somewhere else. 
How do you draw attention to an installation like that? This is something that I think about a lot as somebody who does AR installations. There's always that sort of added step of having to download an app or you know, engage with the technology that's not physically there. Do you think about that when you're doing an installation like this? Yeah. I mean, you know, a hurdle like downloading an app is significant, especially when you're in the middle of Times Square. And, you know, <laughs> so, you know, um, and this is a unique instance, of course, but, you know, um, having the right signage, uh, what we did pop up, um, you know, and it, we worked with the Times Square Alliance, the Queens Museum, uh, an organization called No Longer Empty. Um, and, and we did, you know, in the center of Times Square, have a, a bit of a pop up, which drew your attention to um, th the fact that something was going on. And so, you know, more likely than not, you know, there was there was a long line for people to kind of, you know, come and try this out. And so that was a great way to generate, um, you know, kind of a buzz around it and, and to get people to be aware of it by, you know, popping up a little experience there and then and then people could go and do it on their own. Yeah, that makes sense. And there was also a physical sculpture, right, that, that kind of accompanied this whole installation. Yes, there was. Um, and uh, that's that's something that, again, I, I think uh, was a, was a really um, uh, uh, beautiful sculpture that um, Mel had been working on with. Uh, he had a number of folks, um, uh, some of his students, I believe, who were helping with that. We weren't as close to that, but um, um, was was it was a part of the experience because the the ship um in many ways which it was it was basically the you know the vessel uh uh but it was also a whale i, I mean if you again if you look it up you can kind of see it but it's this abstract um this abstraction of both a ship and 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 a whale but um that was a part of the experience as well so you you saw this thing kind of come apart in augmented reality and then you're just left with the bones of it um so um it was really uh yeah, uh, it was it was integral. Yeah, definitely go online and check out Mel Chin's Unmoored if you want to know what we're talking about. It's a really amazing work of art. Um, and speaking of artists, I'm just curious how it is to work with all these different artists. What is that relationship like for you? Do do you view it as a collaboration? Do they see it as a collaboration? Are there ever times where you're just kind of like, oh my god, they want to do this thing that is totally ridiculous and we don't know how to make it work? <laughs> I think you know. Because sometimes in the case of like Brian, you know, like we're going to them, it's it's, it's usually the, the conversations come up in different ways. Um, um, but, you know, I guess it's like anything once you get into it. Right. Um, you're you're just working together on it. Right. And, and you're working to figure out how to get to an end goal. And so um, you don't I guess, you know, all of those things kind of fade away and you're just in it together to, to figure out how to create this thing. So no horror stories about artists. <laughs> <laughs> we've been pretty, we've been pretty lucky. That's actually. great. I mean, you're I, very I, lucky. I say lucky, but I, I don't think it's luck. I think that there's an important part of this is we are very artistically orientated ourselves, obviously, and our team is comprised of of people who are, you know, uh, are very active in these worlds of of art, you know, whatever form of the culture it is. And so I think that the conversations always start in the right place, that is, you know, come from the right place, and also from a realistic place, which is, you know, we're, we're creative technologists, you know, at our core in some ways, or, or, you know, a big part of our team is that. And so we've been pushing the technology to the point where it breaks. That's what you kind of need to know. And as long as you're very clear about what it can and can't do at this point in time up front, then as Steve said, then it just becomes about like, you know, how do you explore and create something amazing within those parameters? And it, um, and so we don't let it get to the point of just, you know, an unreal, unrealistic expectation. Um, and sometimes if that's the, if that's the discussion, it's like, you know what, let's talk about this in three years time. Cause we may be able to do that then, but not right now to the, you know, in the way that you want to do it. Those types of discussions are really important, I think. And what's uh, what's coming up next for Listen? What are you excited about these days and for future projects? Uh, yeah, we have a couple of things. Uh, we have some of our own initiatives that we're that we're been working on for a while. Um, uh, but one of the big partnerships we're working on at the moment, again, this is a, um, we've talked about them a bit tonight, but they, they are really 
brave and really interested in pushing their technology in the right way in the cultural space and the art space, I think. And, and, and so this, this project is a, another partnership between Microsoft and, in this case, the Greek government, which is all around the ancient site of Olympia. Obviously, mm. the Olympic Games didn't happen this year. Um, and, uh, you know, the Greek government are really interested in, again, you know, similar to Seoul, the, the preservation of, which means something different in this case, um, but also the education about the important role that the ancient site of Olympia uh, and how the Olympic Games started, um, you know, has played in the evolution of society in some ways. Um, so the ancient site of Olympia in, in Greece is, is 31 to sort of 33 monuments, which are all in various states of ruin. They were built 3,000 years ago. Um, and we've been uh, looking at um, how to bring that to life in a few different mediums, actually. And we can't talk about everything yet because um, it's not live, but um, there'll be a, a, a digital presence. There will be uh, an AR-based app and and uh, eventually um, probably a HoloLens experience as well. But um, even in uh, times of COVID, we've managed to um, use local crews and, and people with drones, and we've been um, capturing the entire site um, as it is using um, sort of capturing it in photogrammetry. Um, and now we're working on how we bring them back to life um, in various mediums and educate people on sort of you know what was there obviously you've got the temple of zeus which is one of the seven wonders of architecture you know it's it, very important in a number of different ways um and we're working closely with uh, with the government on historical accuracy and a team of archaeologists and so it's a really really big ambitious project um uh it's hugely exciting and um we can't wait to be sharing that with the world at some stage in uh, in 2021. Oh, that sounds great. I'm always really impressed and excited about the idea of digital memorialization and preservation. So mm. I can't wait to see this project come to light. Um, before we go here, and thank you so much for talking about all these wonderful projects, you can see more of the work uh, of Listen at wearelisten.com. Um, but before we go, we have this tradition of doing rapid fire questions on state of the art, which are just kind of crazy questions to get to know you a little bit better. Um, so maybe you can both answer these. Just the first thing that pops into your mind. Um, <laughs> so what is your favorite sound? Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> There's no right or wrong answer here. You want to you go first? No. <laughs> oh, God. Your favorite sound. I would say, uh, I will, I will, I will say that oh my god Gabe this is so hard yeah this is the hard part of the interview that's how it always <laughs> works this is why we like to get to know you better through these crazy questions I, I will tell you a moment that I had that was a sound that was very meaningful I don't know if this counts or not but you know they always say that, that statistically the worst this is not rapid fire at all so I'm sorry no, that's, <laughs> that's, I think it's going to be good they always say that you know the worst the, the highly the highest rated negative sound, negative response to a sound is a baby crying. And I will agree uh, with that. It's, it's a very uh, visceral reaction that you have. But, you know, I have a 15 month old. And I will say the first time that he said um, dada was a sound that I will remember forever. And it was very, it was a very wonderful. And uh, it was, it was a moment that, you know, it just like blew me away. And it was just the sound of dada, which I never thought would be that, that big a deal. I think that totally makes sense. Brett, do you want to follow that one up? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, nothing quite as emotional. Um, but uh, it, it's ironic, actually, because Steve is the only one of us who can actually play the drums. But um, the sound of the drums, uh, you know, I, I grew up in a small town in Australia, and it was sort of starved of culture in many ways. I was, a, I was actually a, an early hip-hop fan, and breakbeats and all that kind of stuff was a, was a big musical influence on me. And since then getting into all other forms of music and I'm always listening to people drum and hearing the sound of the drums is, is probably one of my favorite things. So now you just need to make like a remix of a breakbeat with uh, Steve's son <laughs> <laughs> at the same time saying data and then you could, this could get weird. Um, here's the second question for you. Should cell phones be bigger or smaller? I'll answer that. I think that, 
I'm, I'm good with where they are generally right now. <laughs> okay. So none of those 90s cell phones, which were like uh, your thumbnail size, you'd have to hold up to your ear. No, not with what we use them for right now. I think it's, it saves me a lot of time not having to be looking at a computer screen to be able to use my phone for certain things and uh, allows some flexibility. So I'm, I'm good with it. Steve, any other hot takes on the size of cell phones? Um, well, seeing as maybe they're going to be, um, you know, chips soon in our, <laughs> I think maybe I'll go with, I think they're at a pretty good size right now. Uh, much bigger than the biggest would be very difficult. All right. And the last question, what is your favorite karaoke jam? I will always love you. <laughs> Great. Uh, I'm the Grinch on this question. I hate karaoke. Oh, wow. Uh, Steve, are you a karaoke fan? I wouldn't say fan, but, you know, I, I will partake. And Brett, you're just like, anytime there's karaoke, I'm out of here. No I'm listen holiday I'm, parties yeah. with karaoke. Yeah, I'm super boring like that. Fair enough. I mean, I'll be there. I'll, I'll watch everyone but if, if they want to embarrass themselves like that. But um, just never been my thing. They don't make you do a song, though, at the end of the night. Good luck. Good luck to them. <laughs> all right. Um, Brett Volker and Steve Milton, thank you so much. Again, go check out all the work that Listen does at wearelisten.com. Uh, for State of the Art, this is Gabe BC, and we'll talk to you in our next episode. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of State of the Art. You can find us at State of the Art on Instagram or Twitter. State of the Art is an at-art production originally created by Ethan Appleby. Uh, our audio engineer extraordinaire is Weston Stevens. We call him Wes. Uh, our producer is Francesca Rodriguez Sawaya. We call her La Funchy. And our intern is Abby Asmus, and we just call her Abby. This is Gabe BC. You can find me at Gabe BC on pretty much everything. Stay tuned next week for another exciting episode.